have to address the purity culture. We have to address systemic things like abuse and adverse childhood experiences. But then we have to say, like, what do I actually want to be true of my sexual life? And I think that's where the, the beauty comes in, is that so much of unwanted sexual behavior steals from us. And so being able to invite people to desire again is one of the most holy things that I do. For the parents and guardians listening, this episode will dive into some hard topics, including desire and arousal and all those things. So make your best judgment call about younger little ears listening in to this episode. Hey, everybody, Jen Hatmaker here, your host of the For the Love podcast. Welcome to the show, you guys. I hope that you've been enjoying our Elephant in the Room series because it has been quite a ride. We knew as a team going into it that we wanted to knock out some hard topics, primarily that we struggle to wrap meaningful conversation around, things that we struggle to face, to admit, to discuss, to examine. And so, you know, what better way to do all those things and just pull them right in the center of the room, bring in experts and just go right at it. So when we started putting the series together and talking about what are those things, this topic today felt right squarely in the center of it. And we, we put a lot of energy behind this episode, a lot of planning into the interview, a lot of caution on who we would bring in as an expert around today's conversation. So I'll start by sharing maybe just a little bit of my experience growing up in a conservative, traditional environment and what was taught to me about sex. Basically, I mean, if I'm going to just sum it up here, while being taught that, like, on one hand, like, sort of theoretically, if you will, sex was good and holy and lovely, we were also told that outside marriage in any iteration, even just located in desire, it was heinous, right? And of course, mind you, all this teaching came at us while we were at the peak of the hormonal swirl of adolescence where sex was all we could think about, right? Where sexual images are coming at us from all sides. And so not only were we told that we need to be in utter sexual lockdown, but even our thoughts about it were bad. I mean, message received. The amount of instruction I got on just sexual thoughts and how desire felt in my body. I mean, I got it dirty, disobedient, bad, perverted. I got the message, right? We all did. That's where the purity movement came in. All the the purity rings, the true love weights campaigns. If you're one of my fellow evangelically raised brothers or sisters, you might remember all the literature and the content and material around this, the programs at our church. Like there was even, you, you might remember a book that was wildly popular, which by the way, the author has since renounced having moved into adulthood, but it was, I kissed dating goodbye. Do you remember this? It was this whole movement literally written by a 21 year old about just courtship and how there was no value in dating because everything around dating was inherently sinful and dirty. Right. And so maybe this doesn't get talked about as much, but you know, I'm no stranger to this, like the absolute proliferation of super young marriages in the church, like getting married at 18, 19, 20, 
like, is this a great idea? Like, is it, is it if you're young and you're told you can't have sex until you do? So your frontal cortex isn't even knit together by the time you're 21. But you know what? Go ahead and get married and have babies because having sex before marriage is worse than that, right? Like make these consequential decisions in your life at that age as a way to, at least in part, invite sex into your life in a way that is not mired in shame and then build a life on that (laughs) mess. We weren't encouraged to talk about sex much, really not, at least in my world. I know some of you have exceptions. This was not a taboo subject and you were raised like in that way. But for, for me in my world, we did not talk about sex except in the context of how to avoid it. (laughs) That was it. Like girls, don't you wear that spaghetti strap shirt? Because also enmeshed in purity culture was this baked in idea that everybody's purity was the responsibility of the girls, right? That it was the girl's fault that the boys were having feelings in their loins. And in fact, the feelings that they were having are perfectly normal, absolutely good, like developmentally appropriate, as were any feelings of desires that us girls had, but because it was so wrapped in like shame and thou shalt not, and, you know, not even the, this, this sense of squashing it in our own bodies. A lot of the responsibility was laid at the feet of girls. It's a lot to unravel. It's a lot to walk back and it's a lot to relearn. And so, so many of us moved into adulthood out of that context and then wondered why sex always felt broken or why there was still shame wrapped around it, even inside like the, the Holy grail of marriage, right? Even there, why were we still self-conscious or why were we still inhibited or why did we still feel bad or even obligated? Or I think for a lot of listeners, why did it go absolutely dormant, right? Where did it go? So our guest today, you guys, I've already, I just recorded the episode and I feel like I'm going to have to have him come back because there's more to say. It was so powerful. Like you're going to hear some things today that maybe you've never heard. And the sense of like liberation and permission and just, it's like a, it's what I wish we'd have had when we were all 14, honestly. So he's going to guide us and lead us toward hope here. So Today I have on the show therapist and author and speaker, Jay Stringer. So Jay has done some real groundbreaking research around what it is that leads people into sexual brokenness, like going kind of way back to the origin story of it all. So we're going to get into some topics here. I just want to say this up front before we, before Jay's on, that could be triggering for you for sure. Like we talk a little bit about what it means when you've suffered sexual abuse or exploitation at young ages and how confusing that was for our bodies that were awakening on purpose and for a good reason, but then corrupted by addiction, by some somebody else's sort of unwanted sexual behavior, and then trying to figure out how to work that out in our brains. Like, we're going to get into some of that. You might've engaged in behaviors that stemmed from a broken place in your own life. And now you see these sexual behaviors in your life that you're like, who am I? Like, why is, does this have mastery over me? What is under this? Having come from a religious camp myself, I mean, 
I can't even count, can't even count the number of pastors who've gone down in flames over this, right? And so before we booted them out, of course, and lamented over how could we have not have known like where they were at with their sort of compulsive behaviors or out of control sexual behaviors, not many of us asked, God, where did this begin? I don't mean like a year ago in his or her life. Where did, I mean, like, where did this begin in childhood? Where did this begin in somebody's experience? How could this person maybe, maybe be helped instead of scorned? So Jay asked that question to a lot of the people that he talked to during his vast research. And he came away with some surprising, honestly, sometimes heartbreaking, but I think ultimately hopeful answers. So all that in the context of these statistics that he unearthed, that three to 5% of all Americans are addicted to sex and addicted is a weird word and it's loaded. And so let's wrap that around the concept of engaging in unwanted sexual behavior or compulsive behavior or out of control sexual behavior. So that's nine to 16 million people. This is just Americans. By the time kids become teens and adults, 62% of them will have received a, a sext like a sexually explicit image begin text and 41% will have sent one. 64% of 13 to 24 year olds intentionally watch porn at least once a week. And porn sites actually receive more monthly traffic than Netflix, Amazon, and Twitter combined. These are hard things to hear. And it kind of breaks my heart that an industry that has perpetuated so much harm has become legitimized to the extent that now we think it's not a big deal. I feel like the pendulum has swung too hard. And Jay and I talk about this today, that what sort of maybe was locked down too tight around sexuality and coming of age and desire and arousal has gone so far the other direction now that let everything in right? There are no guardrails. Everything is fine. Everything can be considered healthy when all the results clearly show us that that's not true either. So he's going to walk us through all of this today. He's done really good work here. You guys that he builds connective tissue in here for us. He is kind. He is generous in his assumptions. He is hopeful for what you and I, even those among us who have had the most devastating sexual experiences, even there, there is hope. And I think this is a powerful conversation today. And so just for you to know, Jay Stringer is a certified mental health counselor, a minister, an internationally acclaimed public speaker. He works with men and women to help them understand where their like sexual pain and brokenness stems from, how it is impacting their current life and how they can walk the road toward healing. His book is called Unwanted, How Sexual Brokenness Reveals Our Way to Healing. And his research draws from more than 3,800 people and really offers us guidance to find our way to wholeness. It was powerful today, you guys. This is a powerful conversation. Thank you for staying in it. Even if it's triggering to you, I'm reaching through and I'm holding your hand and I'm saying, let's, let's hold in here together, even though it's painful, even though it may be hard or embarrassing, even it may be shame-based wherever you are right now around this conversation. I think this episode is going to serve you well. I couldn't possibly be more pleased to bring you this incredible conversation to confront yet another elephant in the room with Jay Stringer.
Jay, I am genuinely grateful and delighted to have you on the show today. I was just telling you before we started recording that this conversation, which you well know, it's your life's work, is just fraught with suffering and misinformation and bad theology mm-hmm. and shame. And it's just so tender that when we dive into it here on the show, we want to be a hundred percent sure that our guide, our leader, our guest is trustworthy in this space. And you are, we are really grateful that you're going to kind of bring your work to bear on this community. Thanks for being here. Oh my goodness, Jen. Thank you for having me. I've kind of filled in my listeners already a little bit about kind of who you are kind of from a high level, but for those who are new to you and your work, and also who are like, they heard the intro and they are on pins and needles, you know, people come to this conversation on pins and needles. So can you tell us what it is you do? And, and, and then a little bit of who you are, who your people are, where you're located in the world. And then what really, what was the impetus for leading you into this work? So I live in New York City, a fairly recent transplant from Seattle, met my wife in grad school. We were both studying psychology. So we are both psychotherapists, which is Fun and maddening all at the same time. Two young kids. Lighting a candle for the kids. (laughs) We always say you need to start your 529 college investment plan and then also have a savings plan for therapy. So it's the truest thing you've ever seen. Yes. Literally. Yeah. Yeah. So we live in New York City, adjusting to just the wildness of life here. It's just such a circus on a lot of days. But most of my work is primarily with men and women working through what I refer to as unwanted sexual behaviors. So that could be the use of pornography, extramarital affairs, or just like what I'm seeing a lot more is just hypo arousal, which is that sense of like, you just need a defibrillator for your sex life because something is dead. So just that sense of like, you know, not trying to overly pathologize sexuality in terms of everything is an addiction or everything is just normal, just do whatever you want. I think all of us come into sex and this is just like a very crowded theater stage with a lot of characters, a lot of people, a lot of shame. There's been an audience. And so really helping people to understand their sexual story is what my work is all about. And so in terms of, you know, the two key stories that come to mind with regard to why did I get into this work? You know, I didn't grow up going through puberty (laughs) thinking I'm going to be talking about my sex life and sexual issues. But one of the stories that comes to mind is my dad was a minister, so I'm a PK. And one of the things that I remember is that whenever people would try to reach out to my father, small Presbyterian church, they would try and reach him at the home office, but they wouldn't be able to reach him there because he was already home. And then they would leave a basically a message on our answering machine. And we left our answering machine right next to the kitchen table. So this was like, you know, before Netflix, this was like drama of what are the stories that are happening within our church? What and shenanigans are yes. going down today? <laughs> yeah. Yep. So classic kind of 80s dinner of, you know, cream of mushroom soup, chicken and Ritz crackers sprinkled on top. And so we're eating and essentially an elder's wife calls and begins to leave this message just in tears about her husband having an affair and she had just found out about it. And I remember being seven, eight years old and having this like really profound sense of, I remember just seeing him on the the previous Sunday and this sense of like, whoa, there is so much more happening 
in people's lives that we never talk about. And so just that early sense of why is it that it's the sexual crisis, it's the unwanted behaviors, it's the heartache that people tell the truth of their lives, but they don't really tell the truth of their lives on Sunday. What's going on there? And so, you know, my dad would get busy, go and attend to all these things. And then my job was really to attend to my mom that, you know, just having a pastor that was gone quite a bit, a lot of meetings. That was kind of my initial sense of how do I get a sense of the heartache, the anger that my mom is going through and just being kind of pulled between the intrigue of people's sexual lives, but then also the reality of there's a whole community at play that we all need to attend. So that was kind of early. And then I would say, you know, as a psychotherapist, one of my first clients that I worked with, she came in to see me because she was struggling with just a lot of pornography would kind of end up in a bar blacked out from time to time. And essentially what she disclosed to me is like, she just, she said, I feel so perverse. I feel so broken. I feel like there's something entirely screwed up about who I am. And so when we got into kind of what could be referred to as her arousal template, like the things that turned her on, the things that she pursued, a lot of what she began to describe was kind of just levels of degradation and violence in her sexuality. And, you know, early therapists, I had no idea necessarily what to do with that, but I began to get a sense of her sexual story. And what she described was being in middle school, grew up within purity culture, and also had an abuser that was an upperclassman. And one of the things that happened was when she was on a youth group bus trip, basically a junior, senior in high school had begun to sit next to her and began to molest her. But one of the things that she began to describe was this sense of like feeling a lot of desire for him in this moment where she began to turn her legs towards him. And it was that moment of turning towards him, turning towards her abuse that she just began to berate herself for, of how could I have wanted that? And so that was just one of those initial, very tender stories of like, I'm holding the complexity of her current sexual life and behavior as an adult, but there's such an innocence and a desire. But then in the purity culture that she was in, that turn and actually wanting touch left her so wildly confused. And so I think that was one of those initial places of, you know, our sexual lives, like we can't just pathologize it as that's bad, you're an addict. And we can't just kind of say, yeah, you do you. There's a story embedded within our behaviors. And so that's what I'm so passionate about is let's get to the story. Let's stop just kind of liberating it and let's stop pathologizing it and just kind of say like, this is a very noisy room for all of us. And we need to understand the story that informs why we are where we are. I'd like to get a little bit more granular on that. And that's a really good example. And I I think, you know, I, I primarily lead a community of almost entirely women. And so, I mean, you know, the numbers, the percentage of us who have had some sort of unwanted sexual abuse or exploitation or any of it is super, super high. I mean, it's, you're talking to a room full of women who are nodding their head right now. And, and so I appreciate you talking about how some of those early experiences can really create confusion because they tap into some normal parts of us that are meant to be aroused. Desire is we're it's baked in like it's supposed to happen. And so it is 
it is wildly confusing when some of those really good and healthy and normal and developmentally appropriate elements of our bodies get sort of corrupted by abuse and then what the mind game that that plays with us. And so I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about that. Can we drill into that a little bit? And then for the people who are listening, who went, I think he just said purity culture. And I don't know what that means. You know, a, a, a big portion of my community will, we all went through it. I like, I'm sure I still have my true love weights certificate somewhere. Do you still <laughs> have your ring? Did you ever have the ring? I can't, okay. I can't, I can't do it. I, I can't talk about it. It's too much. It's too much at the time. It's, it's the air we're breathing. I didn't know there was any other air. I, I didn't know there was a different level of atmosphere. And so can you talk a little bit more about the shame, confusion, confusion, also that sexual desire is super normal and good. And so that's, wasn't the problem, but people made us feel like that was the problem. Yes. I put yes, a lot out there. Totally. You just grab what I mean, you want yes, right there. God you just is grab the, it and go. Yeah. Okay. God is the author and the designer of sex and sexual pleasure. And therefore it is blessed. It is good. So that sense of anytime you're going at war against something that God has made and has allowed your body to begin to feel, to feel arousal, just anytime there's that sense of shame around a response that God has given to us, that's so much of the intersection of purity culture is that you begin to go to war against something that is very good within your body. And so then you end up feeling like your self-worth rises and falls based on your ability to achieve sexual purity, which is essentially at the end of the day, the attempt to suppress desire. So there's this wild confusion of I'm supposed to suppress desire, stay pure. And then the moment that I get married, I'm just supposed to know how this thing works. And if I'm a man, my wife is just supposed to be this, you know, wild, sexual, erotic being in my presence that exists to serve me. So it's just, it's, it sets up, so it's a Petri dish of entitlement, of shame, of things are not working, but they were supposed to work. But with regard to, you know, the nature of abuse, I think part of what we have to say is that, and this is often confusing for people because you're right, like a, a third of all women, one in four, depending on the research, would have some past history of sexual abuse, sexual assault. And so part of the razor's edge that we have to walk is we have to condemn that sexual abuse is horrible, it's trauma, it's illegal and criminal on a lot of days. But Whenever an abuser is beginning to move towards someone, they are in the process of grooming. And so what we know from most family systems is that a lot of family systems are very rigid, meaning lots of rules, lots of regulations, or very disengaged. So that sense of your parents worked a lot of jobs, you know, having a clean house was far more important to your mother than to actually get a sense of who you were, how you're you know, body was doing, how your heart and soul were. And so anytime there's an abuser that begins to engage you, they begin with this process of attunement. Like they see you, they say like, you know, they delight in you. There's a sense of what I described with that woman on the bus, like this older classman began to engage her with music. And that was one of the first things they talked about was just artists and songs that they were both enjoying. And so there's that sense of 
connection, which is a form of oxytocin. But then as the abuse begins, every abuser is fundamentally looking for the pleasure of the person that they are victimizing. Why? Because the moment that you begin to feel a level of arousal or pleasure, like the introduction to porn, or you see something that you've never seen before, your body, as you said, Jen, is going to respond. And so it's that sense of like, when I begin to feel dopamine or pleasure, or, you know, for her, that moment of turning her legs towards her abuser was this sense of, I will never forgive myself because of the desire that I felt. And then, you know, in purity culture, you don't have any language to talk about sexual desire, much less abuse. And so therefore you go into complete silence and it becomes, again, just this Petri dish of shame where I feel bonded to this person. I felt a level of pleasure, but now I feel shame and cortisol pulsing through my system. And that's really the heartache and the madness of abuse is that how do we begin to bless our arousal and get a sense of our arousal is good, but we also need to learn how to condemn the systems like purity culture or abusers that really stole something from us. And that's really the razor's edge that you can't just talk about easily in culture because we either just want to say, you know, it's all me too, or it's just a sense of these things are perfectly normal. But we have to invite people to say we need to condemn and stand against any toxic system, any abuser, but also not condemn the person's body that began to experience a level of connection and desire. But that, that for that woman was what she went at war with. So later on in our session, in our work, one of the reasons why she said she went to that sexual template of violence, she said something that really changed the way that I think about all this. She said, when I imagine being degraded in my fantasy, I don't have to choose. And so that sense of her initial choice was what she was in a civil war with. And so I, I find that to be so true of men, but particularly with women, is this sense of they're in a civil war with their desire, that they both want connection, and yet when they get the connection, there's a type of entitlement that they experience from their partner. And anytime there's entitlement, you can't let sexual desire really grow. And so then there's a sense of I feel desire, but then I also shut down desire as a type of protest against a system that demands your sexual subservience. So again, it's it's madness out there with regard to the evangelical sexual understanding, but also past experiences of harm. And then also to feel desire to, to bless kind of the goodness of what God has given to us. This is hard work, mm-hmm. what you're saying right now. Yeah. As you know, we've launched into 2022 with a bang in this Elephant in the Room series. It's meant to tug a little on the edges of some things we don't always want to talk about, but that we need to talk about. And in doing so, it's also tiptoeing us a little closer to being comfortable with these uncomfortable topics. But for a second, let's talk about another place where there's exactly zero space for discomfort in my book. 
And that, as you know, is footwear. We are covering a lot of ground this year. We have places to go and new earth to dig into. So this is where Rothy's comes in. They are just one of those brands that I know will always deliver on insane comfort without looking comfortable. You know what I mean here? (laughs) Like we want to be cute. But we also don't want our feet to hurt. You know, I have been a long time Rothy's girl. I put on their slip on sneakers and never looked back. They've literally walked a million miles with me. But it's not just sneakers at Rothy's. They have a whole slew of styles for women and for men, both casual and dressy, flats, loafers, ankle boots, all kinds of stuff. They also have like really stylish and washable bags, wallets, and other accessories you can put in rotation. And of course, they're all durable, classic and sustainably crafted. Hooray. So hit the new year in stride with a fresh new pair of Rothy's. Hey, new customers, you get $20 off your first purchase at rothys.com slash for the love. So that's R-O-T-H-Y-S.com slash for the love. Sometimes the new year acts as a time of introspection and discovery for us as we commit or recommit to things we want to try and interests we want to pursue. And here's the thing. This is an important practice for the kids in our lives to embark on these same discoveries too. Like our wonderful teachers out there have a huge hand in this, but parents, we can guide in it as well. There are other tools to help cultivate these new skills. A KiwiCo subscription is such a good thing to consider adding into the mix. With KiwiCo, your littles, really, and your bigs, can explore new worlds like engineering and mechanics behind everyday objects or the science and chemistry of cooking or geography and culture from new places and brand new art and design techniques all through seriously fun hands-on projects. And it's all delivered to your door every month. We have a KiwiCo subscription for my nephews, the littles that you hear me talk about all the time, and they go bonkers for them. These aren't like popsicle sticks and string type of projects, okay? KiwiCo sends out the real deal, super high quality engineering and science and art projects for kids of all ages. So redefine learning with play and get 50% off your first month, plus free shipping on any crate line with the code for the love at kiwico.com. So that's 50% off your first month at kiwico.com, promo code for the love. Our sexual history and our current sexual behaviors are just so inextricably linked. For most of us, I I imagine it's hard to even parse it out. It must be a challenge to even parse it out. Like what is really, what is under it and what is motivating me here? And what am I, what am I trying to heal or fix in your work? I mean, I'm trying, I'm jumping to the end here. My suspicion is that in my community, that sort of negative sexual history, teaching, upbringing, conditioning, all the language wrapped around it, all the shame has turned more women into just shutting it down, like considering the whole thing like bad or source of pain, which it was, but unable to parse out why. And so really just like closing the drawer. So what about those women? What about the ones who aren't in bars, essentially trying to look to find a one night abuser, but who have just gone absolutely sexually dormant? Mm. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, I think we we can kind of see that on a continuum of kind of out of control sexual behavior or kind of hypo arousal. So I, I think hypo arousal, you have to understand the strategy embedded within it. So that sense of if I feel arousal, but I have this sense of if I feel arousal, that arousal is something that God is ashamed of, or you know, maybe I feel arousal for someone I went to high school or college with, and I don't want to do that. So then I just begin to kind of shut that down. And so I think this is really that that realm of kind of curiosity of like, at what point did you learn how to shut down something of your sexual desire? So for a lot of women that are in marriages with a lot of sexual entitlement, and I would say these men really don't know who they are, but they know that they want some level of sexual connection all the time, kind of at the risk of any emotional connection in that sense of like, you know, I'm desired, but I'm not truly desired. And so that sense of like, I just need to begin to shut this down as a form of protest against entitlement. And so I think that sense of being able to understand that that's a very natural response to that. But then also kind of what we were talking about earlier with regard to purity culture is that if every single time you begin to feel arousal, you associate that with shame, you're going to eventually, it's like the Pavlovian dog of the bell. And so that's, you know, part of what we have to untease and kind of really invite women to their own choice with regard to sexual arousal and sexual difficulty. Are you finding a lot of healing for your clients? Are you finding a path through here? Again, this is me trying to jump to the end. I'm like, tell me there's some good news here. Like, these are deep, these are deep waters for not just women, but men too. And so I'm curious what your assessment is right now of your, your clients who are, First of all, bravo for facing it, for reaching out for help, for identifying something that is broken or compulsive or whatever it is. So I'm proud of them. But are you finding the human heart has the capacity to sort this out and become healthy? Oh, my goodness. Yes. Yeah. So, I mean, part of what happens is, you know, there's a there's a region of our brain called Broca's area and Broca's area is where the region of speech is. What happens in the midst of trauma, and I would even put traumatizing theology, is that Broca's area goes offline. And so literally when you are in the midst of trauma or abuse or just purity culture, it's really, really difficult to develop language. And so, Jen, that's like the importance of just what you're doing on your platform and being able to bring language to people who have not had language for these experiences. And so when you think about kind of in a way abuse takes away a level of language and choice and being able to own your own sexual story. So that sense of being able to name, you know, for this client or for other clients, when they begin to name their protest, when they begin to name the agony of their own sexual choices, they're bringing language, which is actually breaking the shame cycle. And so I think anytime that sense of really inviting people to, you know, what do you want your sexual story to be? So when you think about what sexual pleasure would be, what would come to mind? And so giving men and women a sense of, you know, what 
what sexual choice do you want? What is sexual goodness? What is beauty? That's really what begins to save us. So I think we have to attend to that harm. We have to address the purity culture. We have to address, you know, systemic things like abuse and adverse childhood experiences. But then we have to say, like, what do I actually want to be true of my sexual life? And I think that's where the the beauty comes in is that, so much of unwanted sexual behavior steals from us. And so being able to invite people to desire again is one of the most holy things that I do. I want to ask you a question because kind of embedded in some of this is both what we were taught about and then intersected with what's actually true about pornography. Mm-hmm. I mean, I know that was a, that was a definitely a line item in my, in my purity culture vernacular, obviously. And, and so there's a lot of noise around pornography. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I know, you know, like it's noisy and there's a lot of very competing opinions around it. And, and, and you've got, they, there's two extremes that I see. And then it leaves me confused sometimes because purity culture did such a number on me that I'm 47 and still parsing it out. I'm still trying to figure out me and my friends still look at each other and go, what's the right thing? Like that wasn't it, but this, the pendulum swung so far over here. That feels, this feels not it. This feels unhealthy and compulsive. And I don't see it making anybody super happy or healthy, by the way, just if we're going to look at the data. And so what is the thing? Like, what do we do? Like, how do we raise our kids? How are we sexually at our age, including in this confusion for me is the stuff around pornography. Like, Can you talk about it a little bit in your experience, what it is, why is it bad? Who is it hurting? How do we keep our heads on a swivel around pornography in a way that is meaningful and it's not an overreaction or an underreaction? Yeah. Yeah, So well said. So, I mean, I think I begin with the word sex is taken from this Latin word sicare, which means to sever or to amputate from the whole. So this sense of like, if you think about a tree that's just been cut, Sex, as some of the theologians would say, is this awareness that I am disconnected from the world around me and the way that I go about reconnecting with it. So I think anytime we're engaging sexuality, we have to begin in kind of Genesis 1 and 2, that there is there is goodness before there is something depravity. Lewis would kind of say before it was spoiled milk, it had to be good milk to begin with. So that sense of so much of the world of porn, particularly with purity culture, is that Purity culture essentially gives you this notion that it's like learning how to cook, but only learning about food poisoning. So you just, it's like you can't learn how to cook or to desire it. So pornography becomes one of the primary places that people have received sex education. So when we don't have a comprehensive model of helping people to understand it, you're going to create a lot of intrigue around what is sex? Where does it come from? How does it work? And so pornography. But particularly what I find in my work is that there is you know, some sense of that disconnection in life, that they feel a level of futility in life. They feel like everything in their life isn't really working out for them. Or maybe if they're a man or a woman, they make a bid for sex and that's not reciprocated. And so in the midst of that anger, they go to a type of pornography in order to 
get through the night to kind of manage their anger and their rage. And so I think we have to begin with the sense of, what does Jesus say? Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. A lot of people find that with porn of like, I need seven, 10, 20 minutes, an hour to just be able to not deal with the pressures and difficulties of my life. But also the nature of what Jesus is saying is like, you know, you take all of the injustice, you take all of the anger, you take all of the rage and you bring it to the cross. Well, there's something about pornography that also, you know, exists at that intersection of kind of lust and anger from Matthew 5. And so this sense of, for a lot of men that I work with, I would say that that's part of their process of not trying to stop pornography, but I use the language of what does it mean for you to outgrow it? And so that sense of, you know, if you don't know how to work through your own anger or your lack of purpose in life without pursuing pornography, you're always going to keep going back to it because that's the only way that you know how to work through your anger or your futility in life. And so I think there's a lot of ways that we can look at porn, but I think it's a thief. And so I think it's a moral issue in terms of why are we using other people for our own sexual gain in the midst of all of that? But it's also a psychological and developmental thing where, you know, if I'm an adolescent that's beginning to use it, that's somewhat normal. But then as I begin to develop, and that's the only way that I know how to maneuver through life is to take an exit ramp to use porn, that's going to end up with a lot of problems in my relationship. So I think that there's ways that we can kind of say there's a lot of degradation and violence within porn that we need to address. But then we also have to understand the psychological reasons why people use it. And instead of pathologizing it, we have to help them understand the motivation and the strategy embedded within it. That's good. I want to go back to this idea of shame. Mm -hmm. It just, we can't talk about just sexual brokenness without talking about shame. There just isn't, it's like, it's, it's fuel, it's, it's gas. And so I'm always thinking about my listener. I'm thinking about the person listening who has some unidentified discomfort or self-consciousness or, you know, shame can manifest in a lot of ways. I think there's a lot of self-consciousness inside sexual relationships that are even married. We're married. I'm still for not free. Like I'm, I'm, I'm a not free person. Something about desire or this just getting off the rails is dirty. It's bad. And we may not even recognize that we may just, I think a lot of women don't even recognize their own suppression. And so how do we begin to recognize when we are approaching sex? Let's in or out of marriage, whatever. I mean, whether we're partnered or we're not with a shame mindset, like what are some of the things running up the red flag for us? Because honestly, we're all so busy. Like we don't have a lot of time sitting around thinking about our sex lives. Generally, that is like number seven on the list. If you were to say to us, these are some indicators that you may be operating inside your sexual story with some shame, some shame mm-hmm. triggers. Yeah. What would you say to us? Yeah. So, I mean, I think if we were to kind of just work on that spectrum of when you begin to feel sexual desire and arousal, do you begin to condemn that? Because, I mean, it's it, as I kind of said earlier, like this is a really crowded theater stage. Like your, your porn history is there, your ex 
lovers are there, your formative sexual experiences are there. So that sense of like so much of, you know, Christian culture is the sense of like, I need to suppress. I use the language of lust management. So this sense of for men, it's bounce their eyes. It's trying to suppress militantly fighting it. But we have never invited people to really understand their sexual life. So one of the things that I do and kind of a number of the resources that I have is to invite people to consider like their sexual life as a house. And so just kind of it's late in the evening and you feel that familiar knock of, kind of sexual desire. What are you going to do? Well, sometimes you just let the intruder come into your house. Sometimes you try and just quarantine it and put up a, you know, a level of surveillance around it to keep it up. And I'm saying, what would it mean for you to go out onto the front porch of your sexual life and to begin to ask it questions like, why do I feel shame anytime that I begin to feel any level of desire? Or at what point in my life or my marriage or my relationship did I really begin to feel like I need to shut down something of my sexual life in order to maneuver through it? So I think it's that process of being really curious that, you know, part of what I say from a theological standpoint is God is neither surprised nor ashamed of our sexual life, but actually understands our sexual shame to be one of the primary places where the work of redemption and healing will come into our life. And so that sense of, you know, shame, you know, is telling us a lot of toxic messages about who we are. And we end up living as prey to the messages of shame. And so part of us, you know, we need to turn towards and face our shame. Facing shame is a muscle that we all have to learn how to grow because initially it's going to be about our sexual desire or our lack of sexual desire. But eventually that muscle as it develops is going to help us to face deeper shame embedded within our family of origin, within our formative childhood experiences. So I think back to your question, anytime there's just the absence of delight within your sexual life, there's some war of shame and desire or a sense of, you know, I just can't find anything. And I feel ashamed that I'm not more sexually desirable or that I'm not full of more sexual desire because that's what I'm supposed to be for my husband. So again, that language of supposed to be is part of what the shame is. So I think anytime I go to like, you know, like a verse like Romans 12 to don't be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. We can't renew our sexual mind if we don't know what's inside there. So I think just being able to talk about what I'm feeling and to be really curious that there's something of dignity in what we're trying to do is just so, so crucial. I love that. I love that word. Thank you for applying the word dignity to this complicated conversation because that was super stripped out early on. And so it's just a completely different way to think to your point, a totally different way to consider our bodies and our sexual lives and our partners and what's possible. And my sense of it too, is that we can probably get a little stymied in this conversation because I think for a lot of women, like they're having sex, they're having it. And that feels like enough. Like the fact that it's on the docket is enough, but even there it is repressed and it is kind of lonely and it's not fun. 
and it's not exciting and it can be all of those things. And there's nothing dirty about any of that. And so that reversal of like the perversion loop that people put into our heads is hard work, but it's like awesome work. Like everybody, who doesn't want to do this? Come on, everybody look alive. Yep. Let's go. Yeah. And there's, I mean, there, there's so much dignity. I mean, even if I'm working with someone that is had an affair, thinking about an affair, even, I mean, this might be controversial, but there's a certain level of dignity of kind of like that something in your body is waking up. Like maybe your marriage has become tepid. Maybe it's become just kind of like you've you've figured out how to make your life work and his life work and kids and family, but then someone wakes you up. Well, if you just condemn that rather than get curious about why is there something coming alive in me and how is this maybe a clarion call to address something in my relationship? We pathologize sex and sexuality so fast rather than understanding like our sexuality is working for us, not against us. But most of us have this sense of yeah, I wish I could just manage this thing or just put it on a docket rather than saying, no, like, where would you actually want to have sex? What would be the, what would be the entire day? And what I find so often, almost with every woman I work with, is that their arousal, you know, just basically orbits around their partners. So any sense of like, well, this is the way that they would want to do it, or this is how the time of day mm, that they want mean. to have. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they want sex to be about mm-hmm. seven, eight minutes long. But that right. sense of like, if you're living in orbit around another person's sexual desire and you're nowhere to be found, part of that is the invitation to actually grow larger, to actually make an imprint and to kind of speak to your desire. And I think that's part of the redemption of purity culture and shame is that I'm supposed to be silent and serve the needs of others. But it's like, no, the wildness and goodness of sexuality is like, you are a woman full of desire. And where do you want your desire to go today? Whether that is for food and drink, or whether that is for a type of sexual experience. So I think desire is is one of those things that we enter into a civil war with. And that's part of the process of healing is to be able to reclaim desire from all the systems, all the abusers, all of the heartache that really caused something of your voice, something of your desire to be stripped away. I love that. I just, that's a good drum to beat. Women have been conditioned to tamp down any sort of want, whatever the want is. We're just, it's not ladylike. Like we're just not supposed to want big. Our hunger has been punished in general, across a lot of spectrums and definitely sexually. Yes. And desire is disruptive. I mean, that sense of like, I want my wife, Heather, to be someone that is full of desire. But every time she desires something, it causes madness within me. Like we were joking before the show, like she had a desire for nine of her friends to come out to stay with us. That's right. For but example. that desire it means that I am sleeping essentially in a camping zone with my children. That's right. And with your children. Yeah. And when she wants resources towards her own development or wanting to plan out so much of her life, I have to contend with like, I'm not the star of this show. (laughs) And my wife, I have to deal with so much envy for my wife and for other people. And I think that's a really freeing system for us 
to walk through is how do we begin to bless that women? I mean, I think that there's a metaphor, even if you have children, don't have children, women are able to grow another organ to be able to support life. I mean, that is insane to me. But I think there's that's the metaphor is that there is so much life and beauty and goodness to women. And it's terrifying for me as a man to be close to it because I feel both envy, but I also have to deal with my own futility within female desire. So yeah, I think desire is God-given, but it's also one of the most disruptive forces in the world. No question. I love hearing you talk like that. We don't ever hear people talk like that. That or men, we don't hear men talk like that very often, or they do talk about it being disruptive, but in a negative way, like shut it down, girls. Like, no, well, I mean, to, the fires, you know, to your point. So, I mean, these are dear friends that are in town, and they get together two or three times a year, have hangouts, but the men. We don't plan these things. We get together no, when it's no, convenient. No, no, you're terrible at this. And that yeah. sense of like, you know, we were in kind of Eastern Washington and we could see the women beginning to plan this trip uh-huh. for New sure. York City. I know how and this we're like, goes. Uh-huh. We're griping and we're complaining. And then eventually a good friend of mine sends an email and just says, guys, are we going to do this thing or not? And that <laughs> sense of, Love it. yeah, we're doing our guys trip later on <laughs> oh this year. God. So. If for no other reason, you just feel left out. Well, yeah, we jealous. feel pissed it's off. Like, we feel envious. Like, the hotel. They get <laughs> to spend money and resources. Why not us? But that sense of you know that's their great. desire actually opened us up to have to engage our own. And I think that's the way it needs to work in relationships and in community. Is, yeah, that's I bless so your good. desire. I hate your desire, but I bless right? it. So. It scares me, but I am here for it. I see what yeah. you're saying. Like I am a, a person of big wants. I have hunger for a lot of things and it's just what my kids have always seen. It's all they know. And so thus I am watching that play out in their lives a little bit because they have these wild imagination imaginations for what they want in the world, what they want in life and what's possible. And I just never gave them any idea that I can have it. And so they don't even know that someone's going to be like, you can't go to New York. You can't, you're going to make me live in my uh, office with these children. This is a not allowed. It's just, it is allowed. It is allowed. And to your funny, like tongue in cheek point, it really has a wildly, mostly positive effect on everybody around us. Like it lifts all the boats in the Harbor. And one, you know, story that I think everybody knows if you've grown up in church is the story of Joseph, right? Like story, he has, he's the man with the coat of many colors, but what happens to him is that he's thrown in a ditch by his brothers. And I think that that's the nature of, I mean, even engaging you, Jen, like you, you, you have a contagious level of desire. And yet that sense of you having a coat of thousands of colors and glory and beauty also sets you up to be enormously hated and used. And so anytime there's that sense of like desire is good and beautiful, you also have to look at the flip side of the coin of now, how am I going to protect myself from being hated and used and violated because of the beauty and goodness within me? And that's that intersection of we need good friends, we need good therapists to help us like you know, find the North Star of our desire and our beauty, but then also begin to have a community that's really aware of saying, Jen, what's the cost of this coat? What has been the heartache that you have had to walk through in your life? 
because you have lived into so much desire. And so that's really, again, where we're holding something of resurrection and death in the same moment of there is such glory and beauty to us simultaneously, such death, such agony, such crucifixion that I have known. I didn't expect you to read my mail. I didn't bring you on here to tell me what is what with me. That's right. It can be a real target. And it's that target that gets us to try and convince ourselves that we should just reduce our beauty or uh, try and not shine as bright. And that's really where just the work of degradation, evil, heartache exists. And so, again, just that sense of how do we bless desire, but also grieve how much it has made us a target to be used and hated. Ooh. All right. So you're going to come into the podcast and you're going to preach. That's fine. (laughs) Thank you for this. So our conversation with Jay today is just so powerful, right? Maybe sexual abuse or trauma is part of your story, or maybe you are also experiencing sexual brokenness in one way or another, or it could be that purity culture impacted your life in negative ways. Really, no matter where you find yourself, know this, you're not alone. And there is support out there. Therapy can be a big part of the healing journey, no matter what you are working through right now. So this is a really good time to mention better help. You've heard me talk about them before. I just have such an appreciation for what they're doing and how they've made professional therapy so accessible. With better help, your therapy's all online. So your therapist literally meets you where you are. But here's the thing. BetterHelp also really prioritizes matching you with the right licensed therapist for you. They have such a broad range of expertise categories. You'll walk through a number of questions to identify the specific pain points or traumas or areas that feel burdened. And if it's not working out with your counselor, you can request a new one at any time and with no additional charge. Okay. And because it's all online, BetterHelp is able to offer not only convenient and accessible options, but also affordable ones. You can even start communicating with a BetterHelp therapist in under 24 hours. So as a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month of BetterHelp by visiting our sponsor at betterhelp.com slash for the love. You can join more than a million people who have taken charge of their mental health. And again, that's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash for the love. I want to land this plane with you. This series is called Elephant in the Room because as a show crew, we wanted to address some topics that were just hard and wrapped up in shame and fear and things we just would rather not talk about. And this being one of them. And so these are some questions I'm asking everybody because we're picking off a lot of things in this series. We're talking about sexual shame and recovery. We're talking about grief, another like weirdly misunderstood topic that we just try to sidestep and kind of all over the place here. But so everybody's getting these questions. I'm just top of your head here. Like you personally, like you, Jay, how do you approach uncomfortable conversations, even interpersonally, when you know this is going to be a hard thing and this is going to be tension? Yeah, I, I hate them. I mean, I'm I'm such a, I was going to call myself <laughs> a coward, um, but I, there's so much cowardice within me. So I, I think that that sense of, I, 
I, I lean, I'm bent much more towards cowardice until it gets to the, be the point where I have to engage an uncomfortable conversation. So for me, that's a lot of just uh, my own trauma history, my own bullying, my own abuse of just like, I live with a lot of anxiety. And so that sense of most of our field, I think has inadvertently taught us this terrible message that we need to reduce anxiety, we need to reduce depression. And I think that that does more damage whenever you're just trying to reduce something. So for me, it's like, how much can I learn how to tolerate discomfort for growth is something that I have to work on all the time of like, this anxiety is not telling me not to do it, but it's like, I need to befriend the anxiety and the discomfort in order to develop growth. So you sound like my therapist. Okay. This is what she's been working on me all year. She's always like, Jen, hard does not equal bad. Yes. Yeah. Like, I'm like, it does. She's like, no, it yeah. doesn't. And we blame Stay it in. on like spiritual yes. warfare and evil uh-huh. and it's yes. that person. But it's like, no, we have not yet befriended and made space for something within us. And that will continue to get activated until it's healed. So yeah, anytime we're, we're moving into heartache, darkness, that we should have some level of natural trepidation. But that sense of, you know, courage compels me to move forward. But I I would also say just a level of curiosity. There's that kind of Dunning-Kruger effect where when you first know something and begin to, you know, develop your knowledge of psychology, theology, sex, like there's this sense where it, you're like, I'm at the top. I know everything there is to know. And then you have this experience and then you just plummet and you're like, I know nothing. And then you gradually, yeah, so I do that quite a bit as well. So I think just remaining curious of there's so much more for me to know that even within sex, you know, I'm something of a sexual expert, but also coming into there's so much more that I do not understand about gender, about arousal, about how all these things work. So I try to approach life as curious as possible. And just that I, I need to learn from people far more than I need to teach or train people. Hmm. What a good approach. I love curiosity. That's something I learned to embrace maybe in the last five years, because I grew up in a culture that celebrated certainty, not curiosity. Curiosity was punished. Certainty was rewarded. And so it's a wonderful way to live. I highly recommend it. Like it's made me so much more interesting. It has, I've learned so much. Yes. To curiosity. Last question. And I ask everybody this in the, in the show, I got this um, from Barbara Brown Taylor. She's done phenomenal work in the world. And you can answer this, Jay, however you feel like. But her question, which I love it, and it can take us to funny and silly places. It can take us to like deep and poignant places. So wherever you're at. Okay. What's saving your life right now? Saving my life right now. Yeah, I would say two things. The first would be electric scooters. Oh, and, this is exciting. And, and even as I named that. Uh, so really when we exciting. moved to New York, uh, my brother-in-law, as a welcome gift, kind of gave us this electric scooter. And uh, sure. if you go like to- stand-up kind yes, that you stand yeah, on? Like, yeah, yeah. So I have this new one that goes, I mean, it's got like a 40-mile range, which is more like 25. Sure. But I can go from Upper West Side down to like Battery Park get a yeah, drink heck yeah. in West Village and come all the way back on this electric You're living my dream. No, if you come to New York, let's let's do it. Well, I we'll, am coming we'll to New York and I'll have you know, Jay, I am M class certified because I have a Vespa. <laughs> and so I'm literally do qualified okay. to do this. Okay. I'm qualified. There's also 
those Vespa apps in New York that you can ride around on these rebel scooters, but go to like a bar in West Village comedy club and then come back up. My kids love them, but just like not being on the subway, not spending money on an Uber, seeing Central Park, like there's, I, I love riding on that, but I also feel a little bit like I did in middle school. Like I loved rollerblading, but always felt a level of like self-consciousness of like, am I allowed to love this? (laughs) So whenever (laughs) I'm riding, there's that sense of, yes, I'm with my 13 year old self saying (laughs) it's good. This is good. You know what? It's a free Um, country. You get to do this. You get to enjoy your scooter. Yes, totally. And then the other side of it would just be, I mean, similar to where we just were in that conversation around glory. Whenever I get to do intensive work with men and women, I feel saved every single time I see them engage glory in their life all over again. That sense of like, you know, like this is a gospel to which angels fear to tread of like, I'm literally peering into someone reclaiming desire and beauty in their life. And that corners me with like how much I want that to be true as well. So I think, yeah, I mean, even seeing you engage your glory, but also the heartache feels like it saves me just seeing that where it's like, that's my battle as well. And so just like seeing people being liberated into their desire, but also feeling a level of grief of what that has cost them, I feel saved by in that classic Jewish sense of I have been saved, I am saved, and I will be saved. So that is scooters and redemption save me. <laughs> That's it. What else is there? Yeah. Like what else is there? <laughs> yeah. That's it. Okay. Will you please just tell my listeners where they can find you? Because what I already know is you've just like scratched the surface for a lot of people here that are like, I need more. I want to learn more. I want to follow you. I want to see what I can do next. Yeah. So my website is jay-stringer.com. In there, there's a lot of resources. I wrote a book called Unwanted, which is basically about my research that I did on 4,000 men and women and their sexual stories. So that book is there, that resource. And then I have a sexual behavior self-assessment that helps particularly people struggling with out-of-control sexual desires, like to understand why they're doing what they're doing. So instead of just trying to stop it, Let's give people compass headings as to what's driving it. And then there's an online course for people that are trying to outgrow unwanted sexual behaviors as well. Some blog articles and those sorts of things. So all things art can be found at my website. So we will or Instagram. link it everywhere. Yeah. Or on Instagram the gram. Or on the gram. Yeah. Okay. Hey, thank you for being on today. Yeah, I Jen, really appreciate you. And I'm grateful for your work in the world. And I feel like you're one of these special leaders who is finding the healthy way through, like you're not overcorrecting here for people and just picking up a new set of compulsions, just on the opposite side. Like this feels like the thing. And so thank you for just your work and for sharing it with me and my community. Like we're, I'm super, super, super grateful. And so thank you. Thank you for, yeah, just living into all of your desire and bringing language and voice and perspective to all this. It's been an honor to be with you. Same. Thank you. Bye, Jay. I hope that that was really maybe just a start for you. And I'm so tender toward 
all of us who have experienced so much pain around sex, it just feels like most of us. I mean, you know, Jane and I were talking about even just sexual assault stats tell us that 40% of us have experienced that. And virtually all of us have experienced unwanted sexual behavior from somebody else. So, and how that has manifested in our lives from whatever your entry point was, whether it was like young purity culture and you, you ran that gauntlet and built a whole life kind of on some faulty pieces, maybe you went the opposite way. And then you began engaging kind of like Jay talked about with his client in like super harmful, abusive sexual practices. I think the root here is the same. And so I feel hopeful for us that we can break this. We can break this cycle, no matter where we are. I mean, I'm 47, I'm breaking it, man. And I'm not going to steer into the second half of my life the same way I steered into the first. I'm not doing it. Fortunately, I'm older and I'm wiser. I've lived life. I'm way more mature in every way, including sexually. But I think there's a better story for us to live. As always, if you want more here, if you go to jenhatmaker.com under the podcast tab, I'll have this whole episode up for you. I'll have the show notes, the actual episode, and then I'll have links to everything that Jay mentioned. So you can go to one place and find it all. If you want to watch this conversation, we're over on YouTube and you can, you can kind of, you can essentially join us in the conversation over on my YouTube channel, which I always that's always the way I experience podcast. My podcasts is face-to-face. And so I'm always greedy for you to get to experience it too, because you miss out on faces and language and body, body language and facial expressions and all the things that really bring a conversation even more to life. And so pop over there if you haven't already. So more to come in the elephant in the room series. Thanks for being a community that we feel safe with, that we can bring these things among our crew here. And that we can address these things with wisdom and graciousness and maturity and intelligence. And hopefully, always our hope is that it serves you well. Wherever it is that you are, you are welcome here and there's hope for all of us. All right, you guys, see you next week.